Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we're going to do something a little different and perhaps a little dangerous. On the podcast? Yeah. Oh, I thought you just meant in general. Well, that too. So on the podcast part, that's right. Today we're going to report on and dissect a recent ruling from the Supreme Court of Georgia, who are awesome and smart So before we do that, we need to get out the necessary disclaimers and gratuitous platitudes. (laughs) That's right, Tane. Whenever we talk about individual cases, and this will be serious for a minute, whenever we talk about individual cases, it usually means that one of our friends or one of our colleagues has been overruled. And we love our colleagues and we know they all work hard and try their best to follow the law. So just understand that just because this one case was overruled it just easily could have been any one of us that was overruled it really was a product of our best efforts and i'm sure it's this judge best judge's best efforts as well and when we discuss the opinions of our appellate courts we never mean for it to sound like criticism because we would never criticize the appellate courts so it's not we love the appellate courts right wade we love our esteemed brethren and sistren on the appellate courts of Georgia. In, in fact, our appellate courts are just about the very best in the United States, the world, and perhaps the universe. Now, let's get on with today's topic. The Supreme Court of Georgia recently decided a case entitled Williams versus Harvey. All right, so Tane, this was a civil case up your alley. It was like a personal injury case, like maybe a real serious personal injury case. Uh, that's right. And the facts of the case don't really matter so much, um, but there are several important rulings for the trial judge to note. What is important to understand is that pre-trial, the defendant made several very vague and general, quote, motions in limine, the kinds that we've all seen. And, 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 and before we go into this, wait, I forgot one thing while we were doing platitudes. Yeah. Shout out, huge shout out to my summer intern, Stephen Greenway, who did all of the research on this case for us for today's podcast. He is, in a word, amazing. <laughs> all right, so let right, me go, so let me well, go but, back. So, so you're talking about these boilerplate uh, motions and lemonade. And, and I can't tell you, whenever I, whenever I see basically page after page after page of motions and lemonade, which, it, you know, you've said this before, they're sort of like, Yonner, I'd like to make a motion that they can't win. Yes. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to let them introduce any evidence under any circumstance. I want to reserve all of my rulings so I don't ever have to let make a make an objection with you. I just want to have this motion in limine because the law has always been, once you make a motion in limine, it's sort of your standing objection. Done, done forever, yeah. And, and I think it's become something of a, of a practice tactic for a lot of people in civil cases nowadays to have sort of these standard motions that they file in every case. And I think it's something that, you know, maybe originated with the death penalty cases, you know, where you see 150 boilerplate motions that are made, but, but 
in this particular case, uh, the one that we're discussing today, there were some 40 of these pretrial motions in limine filed. And the one that was particularly concerned in this case was, was number 33. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but, uh, uh, just, just understand, um, that this particular one was asking this particular boilerplate motion that they were talking about in the, in the case was, uh, it, it was a, for a prohibition to quote statements, contentions, arguments, inferences, or proffer of any evidence to elicit sympathy for the plaintiff or any individual. That was the motion. Wow, that's clear. So, so it sounded like this trial judge was really smart and and did something that I have find, found myself doing more often lately. That is reserving yes. ruling. That's that's exactly right. Um, because many of these motions were overly broad and they were really too vague. And so the judge said, you know, I can't really rule on much of what you've asked me to rule on until I hear the evidence. But the judge did make a specific ruling that the party couldn't engage in any quote, golden rule arguments. And we all know what that is, you know, please do to this plaintiff as you would like to have done to you. If you're, you know, if, if your feet were in the same shoes or whatever, Yeah, imagine you were this plaintiff. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, this so, was your mom or whatever. So the judge said, you, 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 you can't do that. And then the judge also made a general ruling that said, Nevertheless, any statements, arguments, or evidence offered predominantly to overly inflame the emotions of the jury or to elicit excessive or undue sympathy, hostility, or prejudice for or against either party is prohibitive. Now, that's a pretty general ruling, too, but that was the court's ruling at trial. So after trial, the defendant moves for a motion for new trial, which he or she is wont to do. Because there was an $18 million verdict. But go ahead, Wade. On the grounds that the plaintiff violated the court's ruling by arguing in closing that the defendant's suggestion that the plaintiff could properly and less expensively be cared for in a nursing home amounted to that plaintiff's death warrant. Tane, did the defendant object at the time of closing argument? No, the defendant did not object to that closing argument at all. And, you know, it was the standard. Well, we didn't want to call attention to it, Judge. We didn't want to bring an objection. And besides, it was already covered by our motion in limine. So the Court of Appeals found that the court's ruling on the motion in limine sufficiently preserved the objection and reserved the trial courts. Uh, and I'm sorry, and the Court of Appeals reversed the trial court's denial of a new trial. So the Court of Appeals ruled, and what happened after that? Well, in reversing the judgment, the Court of Appeals held that Williams' closing arguments, in which counsel compared the life care plan to, with the nursing home option to a death warrant, quote, clearly violated the trial court's precluding argument offered predominantly to overly inflame the emotions of the jury. So in other words, they ruled that it, that it in fact did uh, violate that general ruling that the court made. The Court of Appeals also said, although there was no contemporaneous objection. Big point, uh -huh, big point. No contemporaneous objection. The Court of Appeals, relying on some other cases, Central of Georgia versus Swindle and others, 
held that the trial court's ruling on the motion in limine was sufficient to preserve the issue for appeal and that the error was harmful. And there were some cases that they talked about about what harmful error means and and are important as well. You might want to look at those as well. Okay, so now the stage is set. We're going to go to the Supreme Court. Somebody's going to appeal an $18 million verdict. I don't care how they rule. (laughs) That's exactly right. And what happened in the in the Supreme Court team? So it's an interesting opinion, and and it's really worth reading if if you're a trial judge, and particularly if you hear a lot of civil cases. The court began its analysis by reviewing the history of what's called the contemporaneous objection rule in Georgia, and the court, the Supreme Court, referred to the contemporaneous objection rule as a cornerstone of Georgia trial practice for over 150 years. Wow, we don't get a many cornerstone rulings, at, you know, 2021. We've been at this for a minute. And I will tell you, I think I could point to about 100 cases without a whole lot of effort where the contemporaneous objection rule was not, you know, it was sort of ignored as being a requirement. That's correct. And that and that's why this opinion, um, I think, is, is somewhat important and, and why it's worth looking at because... Um, there's been sort of this ping pong back and forth about what, when contemporaneous objections are required and why they're required and does it apply to, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but does it apply to um, only to evidentiary uh, violations of a rule or does it also apply to arguments since arguments, not evidence? And so the court talks about a lot of that in going through this history and, um, and it's really important, but the, the court it defines the rule this way. It says, in order to preserve a point of error for the considerations of an appellate court, counsel must take exception to the alleged error at the earliest possible opportunity in the progress of the case by a proper objection made as a part of the record. Well, I mean, of course they do, because that's the only way the trial judge has a shot at, at, at curing a problem that is arising. And so, you, you know... Make it, making the parties make the objections and forgiving them from ever making objection by making a motion eliminate is one of the real dangers of a motion limine because because now if something particularly inappropriate is said, the judge has no shot at, inter, at at intervening, and that's really underscored in this opinion, Wade. And and there's also a a concurring opinion by Justice Bethel that we'll talk about in a minute too. That really underscores um, how this has become something of a problem in modern day practice with the advent of these boilerplate motions and things like that. So, the court defined or or talked about the reason for the contemporaneous objection rule by saying the following, the contemporaneous objection requirement affords the trial court the opportunity to take remedial action if necessary at the time of the alleged, at the time the alleged error is made, thereby reducing the likelihood that a motion for new trial or appeal will result in reversal of the final judgment. You know, I I just got to say, amen. Thank you. Finally. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Now, Tane, let's be honest for a second. Yes. You tried a lot of civil cases. Yes. You ever get a reversible error in your pocket and then go find out what the jury might do? No way. I mean, no one would ever do that, right? Okay, I mean, I'm just uh, checking. I just heard that. Just, you wouldn't just hold that ace, you know, in your hand and, and not play it, right? Uh, <laughs> just checking. I just, I'm sure that wouldn't happen. 
Well, the next thing that the Supreme Court does in the opinion, which is which is also of some note, is that it analyzes OCGA Section 24-1-103 under both the state and the federal law. Um, and this is essentially the, the embodiment of the contemporaneous objection rule in our evidence code. And the, the court said as follows, a contemporaneous objection must be made at the time of an alleged violation of a ruled upon motion in limine occurs at trial, whether during the presentation of evidence or in opening statements or arguments made by counsel before the fact finder in order to preserve the error for appeal. Now, see, what, what, what we've done here is we've said, look, we, we know we have made a mess out of this over the years, but we got this new evidence rule. What grade is it in now? Uh, it's fourth or fifth grade. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not 10 or really 11 new. Years old now. We've got, but we have an opportunity here to use what has been sort of adopted and and sort of redefined a new starting point on this subject, and we'll blame it on one hundred three. But but we'll we'll come back in and say, okay, all that other stuff notwithstanding, here's one hundred three that's almost directly on point. Mm-hmm. So. In answer to your question a minute ago, Wade, about holding that trump card in your hand, um, basically what the court says here is even where a motion in limine has been granted and violated, the movement can't sit back in silence and let the error happen in hopes of getting a new trial or winning an appeal later. That that's that's huge. Yeah. And even more important, the court also found that despite the fact that OCGA section 24-1-103 only applies to evidence. I mean, think about that argument uh, and and opening statements are not evidence, but the court said, nevertheless, it didn't see any reason that that, that statute shouldn't also apply to statements made in closing argument um, or opening statements uh, that violate a motion in limiting. And, and as the court said, to hold otherwise would adopt a rule that violates the principles of judicial economy by permitting counsel to sit silently when an error is committed at trial and with the hope that they will get a new trial because of that error if they lose. Basically what we've been talking about. They just kind of copied what we both said. Nice. Yeah, that's exactly right. But you know, great minds think alike. Well, yeah. our, our weird minds think <laughs> weirdly alike. Sure. So let's, let's look at some of the interesting ramifications of this rule for the trial judge. So some of the things that the court has said, let, let, let's see how that, what, how that applies to us. So first, in reversing violations of motions in reversing, I'm sorry. <laughs> in reviewing, I can't read my own writing. In reviewing violations of motions in limine at the new trial stage, the trial judge should look for a contemporaneous objection in making a ruling. Hooray! So in ru- so in ruling on motions in limine initially, the court should basically reiterate prior rulings that a, that the trial judge has made that. They don't have to abs- absolutely rule on these motions in limine before hearing the evidence, because as you know, most of these are actually proffers, and you don't really know what. And, you know, some of this is going to matter on what the witness actually testifies to. And sometimes, as as we all know, as trial judges, what gets proffered to you. <laughs> Either doesn't reflect what the evidence looks like when it comes from the witness's mouth or really makes no sense. I mean, you get proffered some things and you're like, well, I don't even understand how that's going to come into play in this case. So, so yeah, the, the Supreme court here has underscored the fact that as a trial judge, you do not have to rule on every motion in limine prior to trial. As long as you say, I need to wait until the evidence, until I hear the evidence and counsel, 
I'm, this is just my tip. This is what the Supreme Court says. But you need to say, and counsel, you need to be sure and bring this to my attention at the time that that, an- that evidence is anticipated so that I can make a more contemporaneous ruling on it. I mean, don't you think so many times the evidence is only relevant based upon the context and, and what else is, has been established? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to hold motions and limine in abeyance. And lawyers are going to kick and scream because they don't want to have to actually work and make contemporaneous objections. And you're going to have to push back as the judge and say, no, no, you're going to do your job too. I'll do mine. You got to do yours too. That's absolutely right. And and the court made an interesting point here. And, and, and this underscores the way we ought to look at these motions. Uh, the court said the grant of a motion in limine excluding evidence is a judicial power which must be exercised with great care. Because what you're basically saying to a party is, you have evidence out there that you wish to present in trial, and I'm not even going to allow you to present that evidence, no matter what other evidence comes in. Then the next point that probably needs to be a takeaway from this is that 24.1.103 applies to arguments of counsel as well as evidence presented at trial. Again and again, right. we try to differentiate between, well, what the lawyers say is not evidence, but it's important. It's clearly important. Yeah, and I don't know about you, Wade, but I got taught in law school in, in doing trial practice courses that you should never object during opening statement or closing argument. And I got to tell you, I never believed that, and I made my share of objections during opening statements and closing arguments because that's where violations occur, and you need to make a contemporaneous objection so that the court can fashion a remedy. We had those same instructions, but I guess it, we had a sort of a proviso, unless it's serious. Yeah. You, know, you should not object unless it's real serious. And some of the stuff that is said like this is real serious. That's right. And then a fourth important point that the court Supreme Court made in this case is that Boilerplate motions in limine are not preferred. In fact, as I said a few moments ago, Justice Bethel concurred specially to emphasize that the best practice is to tailor motions in limine to the facts of the specific case and not just put out boilerplate motions. And in fact, in, in, in one of the, I think it was in the concurrence, but it said a motion in limine should be much more a rifle than a shotgun. In other words, it should be, it should be tailored to the specific facts of the case rather than to generalities. And then sort of finally, the trial court should make every effort to immediately correct a violation of a motion in limine upon a timely objection for the purposes of judicial economy. In other words, if it becomes, if it's brought to your attention, judge, that there has been a violation of a um, motion to eliminate that was granted, you need to do something about it, not frou-frou it, because everybody tried the case based upon that understanding, and you need to hold them to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and there's even a quote here, and I really like this quote of the Supreme Court. Thanks, big props to our appellate court here. It says, we are mindful that trial courts are in the best position to determine whether a particular matter violates a motion in limine, whether the violation is unduly prejudicial, and what remedy is appropriate. Well, that was awfully nice of them to say, don't you think, Wade? That's so nice. And and to be honest, it's also very true. Because if we if you don't bring it to my attention, I'm not I'm supposed to remember we're not, you know, judicial comment and all those other episodes that we've recorded, we're supposed to stay in our lane. When, and we need to rule on things brought to us. So that's that's great to have that sort of reinforced here. 
Absolutely. So folks, when you're dealing with motions and lemony, hopefully uh, this episode has given you some, uh, some good insight into uh, some of the things that you ought to do. And uh, it's also given you some useful insights into a recent decision of our appellate courts. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. We hope it's giving you some of that insight into that recent decision, and, and you can see that, that maybe you need to tra- change your trial outline, etc. That's right. We also help it'll help, hope it'll help trial judges with future motions in limine and motions for new trial. Thank you for listening. We honestly, we, we, we could not do this without you, and we really appreciate all your comments and concerns. If you need us, you can always reach out via email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com or our website goodjudgepod.com i'm wade Paget and i'm tame kell well folks that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the good judgment podcast thank you for listening to the good judgment podcast this project was the brainchild of mr doug ashworth the executive director of icje thanks and appreciation to the entire university of georgia college of law for assisting in our recording Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? (laughs) Yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. To be or not to be, I truly don't know. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.